Welcome back. You're listening to Sound Bites right here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. We're now about to have a conversation with uh, David Flores, who is the, uh, is it Flores or Flores? Flores. Flores. Let me make sure. Flores, who is the Baltimore Harbor waterkeeper. Um, and as we all know, there were reports uh, that came in after the last major storm, the 12 million gallons of sewage was dumped into the harbor. And uh, But it's not just that. It's a much larger problem uh, that Blue Water and the harbor keeper have been dealing with, water keeper. Uh, and David Flores is here to talk with us. David, good to have you with us. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. So this is really fascinating. I, when, I, when we all saw the headlines in the in the sun, uh, the 12 million gallons of untreated wastewater were released in Jones, to Jones Falls mm-hmm. after that rainfall um, in, in February. Um, but th- so that – some of that was released on purpose. Some was not released on purpose, right? I mean, this, so talk, give us a bit of the background of that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So it's – unfortunately, it's a typical event for storms of a certain magnitude in our city. When we have enough rain, falls within a short enough period of time – the sewer collection system is overwhelmed and it causes sewage to overflow, not just in the Jones Falls, not just in the harbor, but also in the Gwynn's Falls and the Herring Run as well. So this is a system-wide problem. Um, The overflows uh, along Falls Road were intentional in the sense that they came out of a relief pipe. You know, there's, I think there's a misperception that there might be uh, – someone actually described this for me the other week. Some, you know, some, some guy in a hood under, under the ground you know, turning on a valve <laughs> to release millions of gallons of sewage. That's not the case. It's a relief pipe that is there to relieve this pressure, this hydraulic pressure in the system when it storms. And the reason why there's this capacity issue, um, as everyone knows, our pipe infrastructure, our water infrastructure in the city – not just sewage, but storm water and water, drinking water, is old, right? And, uh, and so th- there's a lot of decrepitude through the system, as I like to describe it, and so lots of cracks and leaks. And so the storm water infiltrates into the storm lines, and then that additional storm water in the sewer overwhelms the capacity. And, uh, and so unfortunately, we see this several times a year. We see uh, discharges from these two relief pipes, which are known by um, – uh, the names OF67 and OF72, presumably OF stands for outfall or outflow. Um, but when it rains, we see millions of gallons coming out of these these structures. And we know it's millions of gallons because under the city's consent decree, they're required to monitor the flow. So they're actually continuously monitoring the flow coming out of these pipes so they can quantify just how much. So but there are a lot of issues here. I mean, the, the, sure. the, they're, they're supposed to quantify – the flow and tell the public, but they don't. Right. So that right? that has been historically an issue that we've been focused on um, is the lack of public notification for discharges from these particular outfalls um, or relief pipes and other locations throughout the city, um, as well as the underestimation of the amount of sewage that actually overflows. And, um, you know, I think it's important for folks to understand that, you know, the city is not going out proactively and, and surveying throughout the entire city during these storm events for sewer overflows up and down the Herring Run, up and down the Gwynn's Falls, up and down the Jones Falls. Um, but we do know locations where it does chronically overflow because you can see the evidence after the storms. You can see wastewater debris. You can find pooled wastewater along the Gwynn's Falls Trail, along the Herring Run Trail, for example. Um, and so the, the problem is much larger than these two pipes. Um, and so as a result, there are very likely millions more gallons that overflow into our waterways, our neighborhood streams and rivers, um, than the city actually has the capacity to uh, quantify or detect. And when we're talking about this overflow, so I'm going to talk some of the industrial overflow that has been happening as well um, from chemical plants sure. and others. But this particular overflow we're talking about now is, is from – the city water sewer system. Right. So it's mostly fecal matter and trash, and that's what's going into our water. So I'm glad you asked that question. And I think that gets to another misunderstanding or, or some uh, an area where we want to increase awareness. When people hear sewage overflow, well, as a fundamental matter, the sewer lines are discrete in Baltimore City from the stormwater lines. They're separate systems. Right. Right. So the sewer line conveys sanitary sewage to our wastewater treatment plants, which are Back River and Patapsico. 
Um, when people hear sewage overflow, they think rightfully, you know, fecal matter, gross. Uh, hopefully they make the connection between human f- fecal matter and human pathogens, which can be waterborne in our rivers and streams as a result of fecal contamination. So, you know, there I'm talking about hepatitis A, uh, staphylococcus, and so on. But the other thing that people don't realize is that sanitary sewage is also industrial wastewater. So there are industrial facilities that contract, basically. They pay the city, in this case, to to treat their wastewater effluent at the municipal wastewater treatment plant. So sewage overflows is not just fecal bacteria, human pathogens, you know, which also contains nutrients and other things that we're concerned with. It, it contains other toxic chemicals and metals that contaminate our waterways. So it's really kind of a, a very toxic brew uh, that poses um, public health uh, risk to water users but also to our ecosystem. So we don't really know how much – how many millions of gallons are flowing into the streams and ultimately the harbor of the Patapsco. We don't really know the exact number. Because they're not for one of a number of reasons they're not reporting it. It's, I I think that we we don't know we the public don't know for two reasons one, um, because the public doesn't necessarily access all of the reports though they're you know if they wanted to go and FOIA the EPA they could do that and hire a wastewater engineer to help them quantify it. but then additionally of course because the city does not accurately report the amount that overflows, whether that's just a, an estimate. But or, not even to the EPA, Environmental, Environmental, Protection, Environmental Protection Agency, or the Maryland Department of the Environment. So the city's required under the consent decree to report every sewer overflow. The consent and, decree being? Right, this enforcement, this overarching enforcement action that's been this ongoing um, program since 2002, 2002 right? right? Under, so it, when, President, when Martin O'Malley was presiding over the mayor's office. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> right. Now that, that now that came after years of what we understand to be negotiation between the city and the in the federal agencies because it wasn't just all of a sudden in 2002 that the federal agencies in the city realized that there was this violation of the Clean Water Act and these sewer overflows. This was from what I understand 10 years, you know, as much as 10 years prior they had been communicating and sort of working up to this enforcement action. But yeah, so under the consent decree the city is required to report to the regulators, in this case the city and EPA, every sewer overflow incident they encounter. Um, but at the same time, they've totally modeled the entire sanitary sewer system to determine where the system is overflowing based upon storm modeling. So they, we know, or they, cer- they certainly know, where the system has chronic failures, so to speak, and where sewage is, is overflowing into our waterways. But this decree that happened with the EPA, this negotiation, I mean, the city had until what was the year they had to fix this? Because now they're asking for eight years more to fix the problem with the sewage runoff. Right. So they had up until January 2016 to complete all sorts of different uh, requirements under the consent decree. Of course, sort of the, the big nut to crack there, so to speak, is rehabilitating the entire sewer collection system to eliminate these overflows. Um, and they missed certainly – that deadline uh, on January 1st of this year. And all we know at this point is that there is a substantial amount of that work remains incomplete at this time. And they're asking for an eight-year extension. I don't know that they're asking for an eight-year extension. There, I think there are a lot of maybe rumors going around. But, well, I mean, some of the centers have been reporting, the, the Brew has been reporting, I thought that they were asking for an eight-year extension with the EPA. Maybe I'm wrong. That may be the case. I've heard all sorts of numbers through the grapevine. So I, I, we don't know, though. We won't know until... Um, they conclude their negotiations with EPA and the MDE and that um, they make a proposed modification, right, to extend the final deadline of the consent decree. They make that public for comment. So, but meanwhile, a couple, a couple of issues here. I mean, meanwhile, while this is going on, <clears throat> the, the, the Inner Harbor is a tourist attraction. Sure. People from Baltimore and all over get in these little dragon boat things mm-hmm. and go through the water. And I remember I spent a lot of years – with a clepper and a kayak going all over the, all over the Inner Harbor and down the taps going back up again, down a pretty dangerous river. Right, right. I mean, because some of the levels of fecal matter are more are much higher, from what I've been reading, at least also in your report, much higher right. than, um, than are deemed safe for human beings. Right. Yeah, our waterways <laughs> um, routinely, um, though not exclusively, see really high levels of fecal contamination. Um, we measure that using fecal bacteria 
And that's part of the reason why we, we, the Waterkeeper program, is on the harbor and have been there since 2008, measuring fecal bacteria levels because before that time, neither the state nor the city was collecting that data. And we wanted to be sure that we had that data to be able to communicate it to the public, share it with the regulators, so as to you know, protect the folks who do recreate on the harbor. Uh, and then, of course, we do see high levels of fecal bacteria in the Jones and the Gwyns and so on that contribute to the harbor, which makes sense. Um, Has anybody done any studies about health-wise what the potential is for people to be harmed or people have been harmed? I mean, I've heard stories from from others who have been on this program uh, over the years, Gerald Weingrad and others, about Mm -hmm. the things that happen when people have stepped in the water and gotten really serious infections. What do we know? Well, anecdotally, I get a lot of reports, right? And so um, when someone kayaks on the harbor and they get sick or they get an infection, sometimes they call us because they want to know how that's related to water quality. And so we've seen people get staph infections through mosquito bites um, just by stepping into the harbor water, maybe to launch a kayak. Um, so, yeah, I think there, is, there, is, there are incidents of waterborne illness um, that are related to fecal contamination. Uh, the, presumably, the State Department of Health and Mental Hygiene tracks that. I've never actually reviewed that information. But we are studying huh. this issue, right? So we know fecal bacteria is an indicator for potential risk. And we've been working with University of Maryland and University of Baltimore researchers over the past couple years to look at DNA markers in the water for human fecal contamination. Because it's the human fecal contamination that has these pathogens that, pres- that present a risk to water users. And, and uh, not surprisingly, but unfortunately, we're finding uh, significant levels of human fecal contamination coming out of storm water outfalls, and then, of course, present in the waterways. So when you look at this, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many levels to this thing. It seems to me that we are looking at an ant- a system that is 100 years old, 100 and, f- and more. At least, yeah. <clears throat> when the pipes, and after the 1904 fire, mm-hmm. there was a rebuild. All these pipes were put in, right. but they're falling apart. And yeah. what I read, some of them are so bad that one of them is four feet below where it's supposed to be mm-hmm. and gets backed up because it can't. That's a big issue. That's a big problem. Yeah. And so this, this suit that was brought against Baltimore, Baltimore's now spent a, collected a billion dollars or more in sewer, sewer fees right. and water fees. Right. People have lost their homes because they couldn't pay these fees yep. in Baltimore City, and they're only half done. So what do we know about the process of why it's only half done? It's only half done because they didn't have the money to finish, the technology to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's because there's, there's a lot of different things that come in here. I mean, I mean, the hundreds of people have lost their homes because they couldn't afford the water fees, and right. now we have the job unfinished. So there's a lot of connecting parts here that say something's gone awry. And water rates best. are about to go up, too, again. And water rates are about to go up again. Yeah. Um, so what do we know about how they spent the money? What do we know? Well, we don't know exact numbers. Um, certainly my organization has asked for those exact numbers, what exactly has been raised in the way of revenue to pay for compliance with the decree, to pay for all these big projects, what has actually been expended and what has been expended on. And, uh, and certainly our position is that the DPW needs to communicate that to the public um, sooner rather than later as we move forward here under this program. Um, but the investment... Um, you know, apart from real human impact, um, and I think that's it's you know a, a different concern, of course, related in some way, um, people losing their homes. Um, but the investment in fixing the sewer infrastructure—that's something we have to do as a city, no matter what. Not just to improve our water quality, not just to comply with uh, a federal consent decree, but because the infrastructure needs to be repaired. Um, but we don't know, and presumably the city may have initially underestimated what it would have cost, um, but we don't know what, what else needs to be raised and spent to complete the work. Well, why are they saying that they're not saying? <laughs> what, what, what's, the, what's the reasoning on part of the city not explaining what's going on? What have they said? Um, I, I can uh, only assume that their reticence on that subject has to do with the fact that they're still negotiating a modification to the consent But decree. they've never said it. Well, they were negotiating... I'm not pumping you because you're not elected official, but I mean, sure. they never said it even, even before they were renegotiating right. um, the, 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 the consent decree. They never said what they've spent, how they spent it, where it went. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. I think there needs to be clear accounting from the city to the public. That makes it very you know, clear and digestible, um, just what's been raised, 
what they've spent and what they've spent it on exactly. And the other thing that we're calling for is not only should they communicate what they've raised, what they've spent, what projects they've spent it on, but what is the expected, expected clean water benefit, right? What are we getting in return in, ter- in terms of restored waterways, um, in terms of re- actual reductions of sewage contamination? And we don't know any of that at this point. And the question, you, you did another report, if I remember right, or had a paper out about <clears throat> different parts of the United States that actually did clean up some water. Yes. So what do we know about how they did that? Right. What did Atlanta do? What did they do um, in Lake Pontchartrain that, we're, that we learned from and are not doing? I mean, what do we know about what they've done? Sure. And how um, effective were they really? Right. So that report was actually authored by the Waterfront <laughs> Partnership of Baltimore okay. through their Healthy Harbor program. And they're close partners of ours. We work together to produce the annual Healthy Harbor Report card. Um, but I think what we do know from other cities and what may very, be, may, may very well be lacking here is uh, significant investment by federal agencies um, in, to Im- repair the infrastructure, not just municipal um, level investment. These other locations had more federal money coming in. Some of them had more federal uh, – again, I think – we need more clarity about just how much federal money has come into Baltimore to fix the sewer pipes um, or what, what more we expect. But some of these jurisdictions saw additional federal investment. Um, some of these jurisdictions had public-private partnerships um, in sort of uh, the planning and execution of some of the work. Um, and then the other things that I think are that would benefit Baltimore here is – um, is one tying the work to clear water quality goals, right? So making that correlation between the dollars we invest in the infrastructure and the clean water benefit we expect to see by re- by reducing sewer overflows, and then also we need um, executive leadership that um, that is invested in not just you know advancing the program sort of behind the scenes, but also going to the public and making this a more public campaign um, to improve our water quality um, and to really build stewardship um, in the taxpayer um, and demand for clean water. So for, an exa- for example, in, in Atlanta, what we saw there, um, when they entered into consent decree, the mayor at that time uh, saw it not so much, certainly saw it as a challenge, um, but it was a challenge that she took on headfirst. Mayor Jackson. Yeah, right. and, and, and saw it as a really critical investment for that city to make it livable, to provide a clean water resource um, that would attract uh, further development, that would be a huge economic boon to their city. And I think certainly the same is true here in Baltimore. Uh, cleaner harbor, cleaner rivers, cleaner neighborhood streams would be an economic boon to our community. In all fairness, a lot of this the just like Baltimore provides a great deal of water to surrounding counties for drinking and house use, the sewage coming into Baltimore's harbors is not just all Baltimore City sewage. Correct. This is sewage coming from surrounding counties. Some, yeah, yeah. So um, to my knowledge, portions of Baltimore County, their sanitary sewage, um, their sewer, their sewage comes into the city system and then goes to the Back River Wastewater Treatment Plant. And I, I think – Probably also some parts of Anne Arundel County, Upper Anne Arundel County, go to the Patapsco Wastewater Treatment Plant, and 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 maybe Howard County portions of Howard County as well go to those plants. Um, so yeah, that's absolutely true. And the other thing too that folks might not realize is that there are sewer overflows that occur in Baltimore County as well. And Baltimore County is itself under a separate consent decree to address those sewer overflows. It's funny as we were thinking about this. One of the things I was we do, we've, done a, we've covered the Eastern Shore, <clears throat> pardon me, and nutrient uh, phosphorus overflow, nitrogen overflow. Right, and, contamination. And, I mean contamination, mm-hmm. overflow, contamination from farms. And farmers are always saying, what about what's happening in the cities? Sure. And we often ignore that. But they have a point. I mean, the point is it shouldn't come from there either. But this is, a, this is also a major urban problem. Um, yes. And, you know, when they had this political will to have the stormwater runoff fee – it became the rain tax right. and became a political football right. that set this back too, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think certainly as regards stormwater pollution, which is a growing source of pollution here in Baltimore and elsewhere in suburban Maryland. Um, and that's part of the reason why we've been pushing the state to strengthen its stormwater permits for cities and counties. 
Um, yeah, so the you know the rain tax. This one more runoff fee is what I like to call it because right, when exactly. they call it a rain tax, that's exactly what they did. They put this idea of this rain. Oh, you're taxing the rain? How could you tax the rain? No. I mean, it's, it's yeah. you know that that became this kind of battle cry that people with means used to get everybody else upset that they were paying for the rain that falls on top of our houses. Yeah, it's really <laughs> unfortunate too because you have some counties that have repealed the tax. Well, this money still needs to come right. from somewhere because they still have to comply with their stormwater permits. They still have to spend a lot of money to treat impervious surfaces that generate polluted stormwater that contaminate our neighborhood streams and rivers. Uh, and so that money is, you know, whereas before it may have been uh, shouldered equitably between businesses and institutions and homeowners, uh, in some cases it might be that now all that revenue is being pulled just from property taxes. Right. And so people might not be paying their fair share. Um, and so yeah, I think that the rain tax um, is unfortunately still sort of an ongoing debate. And it's an unfortunate debate because it really obfuscates the real problem, right. which is dealing with a major source of pollution. I mean, we cover a lot in the city the uh, lawsuits around police violence, which right. they, that should be covered. Sure. But there are also these lawsuits from neighborhoods like West Arlington, Howard Park, in the west part of town, where a lot of them come from, where sewage backups mm-hmm. are going into people's homes, and right. people who sued the city, the city's completely ignored and not dealt with <clears throat> that either. Yeah, that is uh, water going the other way. Really um, difficult problem, and uh, and I don't say that in any way to excuse the city. <clears throat> um, it's difficult for the people who have been impacted by it, um, and trying to work with them over the past couple of years to elevate their story. Um, um, you know, I think that it deserves a lot more attention than it's getting. It deserves attention not just from the city, but from the state by our federal representatives. These people need relief because uh, in some cases, especially in these neighborhoods that you mentioned, these are homeowners and they're elderly homeowners that have lived in Baltimore their entire lives. Right. All black middle class families in the west side of town is what we're talking about. Exactly. Right. And so um, when it overflows in their basements, and it is by no means their fault. This is these. This is the result of failures of the public sewer system, and 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 failures uh, really to meet the requirements under the consent decree to rehab these sections of pipes. It overflows in their basements. It destroys their belongings. It upends their lives. And unfortunately, to date, the city hasn't responded to help them clean it up. They've sort of been left on their own, and uh, and that's that's a public health threat that deserves attention immediately. So I, I wonder what you all say about the. The solution to this. I mean, the, the city is reticent, like many governments, to be transparent about anything. Right. And so that has to be clearly one push. Where's, where's the money? How's the money? How much money has been spent? How has it been spent? Right. And where's it come from? And what has been the effect of that money's uh, money? Uh, the money's being spent on on sewer repair and building new sewage lines um, and, and water lines. But the other part is, the money thing is real, and these things cost a lot of money. And my guess is that the city also probably does not have all the money it needs to do this work. Right. Right? I mean, so what is the political end of this? Right. Well, you can't ignore it, right? So uh, I think like a lot of infrastructure needs and things that we need, you know, problems that we need to address through more public investment in Baltimore, it may very well require state money, right? Federal Um, money. And federal money. Uh, you know, I think until we get a clearer picture of just what what remains to be done and how much it's going to cost and how the city is planning to raise that money, I think it's hard to, to really make a specific push for that additional investment. But, you know, I would say that the state and the federal government has uh, just as much reason to invest more money in a cleaner Baltimore, right, a healthier Baltimore uh, in this way uh, as the city does itself. You know, Baltimore obviously is – um, is the, the big city in, in the state of Maryland, right? I and mean, a lot of economic activity happens in our city. Uh, the harbor is the main attraction in many ways. And so I think the state has just as much to gain from additional investment in fixing this problem. So just uh, – I want to leave this out. Uh, I was reading about this as well, about sure. the um, – I might say this incorrectly, but one company, a lot of companies are dumping chemical waste and other waste into the water. The Arachim Kamalog Incorporated – over in Curtis Bay, um, dumped 350,000 pounds of nitrogen into the water. This came out of your own report, I think, right? Right. So we um, 
we actually filed a notice of intent to sue um, in early February this facility that has been violating its permit. Um, that is still an ongoing matter, um, but certainly we're very concerned that this facility is a is a uh, significant um, source of of nitrogen pollution to Curtis Bay and to the Patapsico. Um, and you know, I, I, and I just wanted to mention one thing. You know, as regards both sewage and, and nitrogen pollution from this and other facilities, you know, people think about. Um, Pollution and, and you know, the, I think the one impact that comes to a lot of folks, their minds, is uh, is the dead zone in the bay. Right. Right? We have a dead zone in the Patapsico. We have a dead zone in the harbor. In the harbor. We have fish kills and algae blooms that are constantly recurring because there's so much nutrients pollution that's entering our waterways from sewage, from industrial facilities, from stormwater, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, we have – um, we have to do our part not just to restore the bay, just as you know, the agricultural sector has to do their part, but we also have to do what we need to do here in Baltimore to restore our waterway. Um, and and you know, uh, that includes obviously permitting facilities, making sure they comply with their permits, uh, and then, of course, it, it involves really challenging work of addressing stormwater and sewage pollution. Through investment of millions of dollars, I mean, and it's a really—I mean, it's a serious <clears throat> health issue. It's an environmental issue. It's a health issue. Sure. And we talked before we went on the air here together about all the people who fish and crab right. in these waters, right? And boat in these waters. I mean, and live by these waters. And it's—it's—it's it's, it's a very serious issue. And I think people. It's, it's, I'm glad this is coming. We're pushing this to the fore here, sure, to, to understand the kind of gravity of what what we're facing, right? Yeah, people are using our waterways. They're using our waterways all the time for boating, for kayaking, for fishing, and then also for swimming. People might not realize that. I see that. Our staff sees that all the time. Right. Um, but you go into West Baltimore and the Lower Gwynn's Falls um, and probably elsewhere in the city during really hot summer days, you see folks swimming in our rivers and streams. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And those streams are contaminated with uh, fecal contamination, certainly with other types of pollution. And there are no signs up saying don't swim, don't there's, jump in the water. There's, there are more and more signs now because I think certainly because of our advocacy Good. that warn the public. Um, but, of course, you know, signs don't stop everyone from, uh, from swimming or, or doing other things like dumping um, or, or, or littering. So, yeah, I think there's a real public health um, problem in Baltimore that we have to address. And it's, it's complicated because you're talking about toxics in fish. You're talking about bacteria in streams. You're talking about all sorts of different behaviors um, that we have to better understand and engage with. And I think that um, – I'm glad these reports come out, coming out. I'm glad you're here to do this with us today. I think that we're going to be putting the reports that you've come out with up at org and also at soundbitesradio.org for you to see these and read them yourself, see the extent of this. Um, and we'll continue covering this in, in greater depth. I want to thank David Flores, who is Baltimore Harbor Waterkeeper, for joining us. David, good to have you here. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Thanks. And we'll cover this a great deal more. Check out our websites to see the reports behind it and the articles that are attached to it. We have to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll be talking with Malik Yakini, Executive Director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and founder of D-Town Farm, an urban farm in Detroit. We'll be discussing racism in our food system and the food movement, as well as Yakini's work fighting for social justice, food equity, and food security for the people of Detroit. And then we'll meet Leila El-Haddad, co-author of the book, The Gaza Kitchen, A Palestinian Culinary Journey, who shares a traditional Palestinian Easter recipe, kaik with dates. Welcome back to Soundbites. I'm Mark Steiner. We have a very special conversation with Malik Yakini, Executive Director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and founder of D-Town Farm, an urban farm. It's about his work in fighting with social justice, food equity, against racism, for food security in the city of Detroit. Lessons we can learn here in Baltimore. Let, let, let's, let's start from the very beginning. Let's, let's start from the middle. <laughs> Describe for our listeners first what um, D-Town is and what this food security network is in Detroit. Okay, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network is a nonprofit uh, 501c3 organization which has a membership base of about 70 people that has uh, four core programs, with D-Town Farm being 
our largest and most labor-intensive program. We have a youth program called the Food Warriors Youth Development Program that services about 200 children in two schools and one church in Detroit and teaches them about sustainable agriculture and teaches them to look at the food system in their own community with more critical eyes. Um, We have a lecture series called the What's for Dinner Lecture Series that's co-sponsored by the Detroit Public Library, which runs every other month from April through October. And then we have a a food co-op, a buying club at this point, a cooperative buying club that functions once a month where uh, members of the co-op can get food at below retail prices. And we're working very hard to morph that into a brick-and-mortar retail co-op store. Now, and, and D-Town Farm, this is a, I mean, it's a, on seven acres in, in the middle of Detroit? It's not in the middle of Detroit. It's in Detroit, but it's seven acres. It's actually kind of almost at the western edge of Detroit in the city's largest park, which is called Rouge Park. So the area of the park we're in was formerly a tree nursery, and as the city's budget fell into decline, they weren't really able to maintain the tree nursery. And so they have offered part of it to us, and the other part is run by another nonprofit called the Greening of Detroit, which has kind of returned it to its original purpose of planting trees that they then transplant in front of businesses and homes throughout Detroit. We're more a model of what can be done, Mm -hmm. and uh, we we don't make any claims to be feeding large numbers of people because we're not. Uh, But what we are are doing is we're planting the seeds uh, in terms of the great potential of urban agriculture and modeling various techniques that can be used throughout the city, such as vertical gardening, such as row cropping, such as uh, uh, raised beds, composting, and what have you, so that other people can emulate what we're doing either on larger scales or on the same scale we're doing if they can obtain the, the land. So we're, we're, we're more a model farm. Uh, we are a production farm also. I mean, we do produce tons and tons and tons of produce. I don't have the exact figures in front of me right now. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we do produce large amounts of produce on that seven acres, but clearly uh, not enough to make a significant dent in the serious uh, lack of access to fresh food in the city of Detroit. So, and what happens to the food that, that you do produce? Where does it go? Uh, we sell primarily at farmer's markets in Detroit. Uh, we sell to some restaurants, and we sell to a couple of restaurants. I'm, I'm sorry, we sell to some restaurants, and we sell to a couple of retail stores. Actually, we have a farm, ops, a farm operations meeting every other Sunday. This past Sunday, just yesterday, I was in a meeting where we were looking at all of the retail establishments that want to purchase our food. And the reality is that the demand for the food that we grow is greater than our capacity to provide that food. And so what we're, what we're doing is looking at the, the, the retail outlets and seeing which are most aligned with our own values. Uh, for example, Whole Foods is very interested in buying food from us, and that could be a steady customer and a good source of income. But it's not as aligned with our values as some of the other markets that are serving right. some of the more underserved communities in Detroit. Can you talk to that a little deep, more deeply about what do you mean not aligned with your values? Well, the Whole Foods is opening in Detroit. Uh, and l- let me preface this by saying I'm not anti-Whole Foods. Right, right, uh, but there's a large-scale gentrification happening in various neighborhoods in Detroit. And so Whole Foods is dropping down into one of those neighborhoods that is a highly gentrified neighborhood. And so we have lots and lots of young young whites who have moved into the city in that particular neighborhood. And so Whole Foods being there almost solidifies the gentrification of that area. So uh, it's not so much that I'm anti-Whole Foods, but I'm anti kind of the context that they're moving into. And so um, typically Whole Foods serves more affluent customers, you know, although they say that they have many products that are comparable to what people would find in typical grocery stores. But we don't really see Whole Foods as serving the majority population in the city of Detroit or significantly impacting the lack of food access for the majority of Detroiters. That's interesting. So, I mean, what you're describing in some ways, um, the, the movements you have, the Black Community Food Security Network and, 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 the, um, and the D-Town Farm, I mean, it's as much as a political movement, it seems, in some ways, as it is a food movement. And you really kind of develop how they're interconnect- those two ideas are interconnected. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I was a political activist for many years before I knew anything about a food movement. I was personally interested in food because within the black movement, and I'm using that term in a very broad sense because it's certainly not monolithic and there's been various manifestations and various ideologies within that broad movement, 
but there have been strains within the movement that have stressed the importance of food and diet on a personal level uh, to have the energy and the strength to be able to participate in a robust manner in transforming society. And so I had a personal interest in that for, for many, many years, but wasn't really aware of the food movement per se. And so I think one of the strengths that we bring to the table is that we've been able to kind of merge these radical politics that we have with this, the kind of green movement, the food movement, and merge those two things in a very seamless way. So for us, uh, really, the, the work of transforming the food system is um, kind of a lens that we use in terms of how the whole society needs to be transformed. For example, we talk a lot, a lot about racism in the food system. Well, racism exists in the society in general. It doesn't exist in a special way in the food system. So more what we're doing is using food system work to help people see the need for transformation of the larger society. Uh, let, me, let me ask this question about, about the question of, of uh, poor communities, especially communities of color, but not solely communities of color, where food scarcity is a very serious issue. Yes. Food insecurity is a very serious issue. Yes. And you've said that you know, D-Town Farm clearly is trying to lead the way on some levels politically, but you can't, you're not a movement that's there to kind of feed Detroit directly. So how, what are the ideas about how we address that in urban areas? I mean, with all these vacant lots that every major post-industrial city has. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we think that urban agriculture plays a role in providing greater access to food. And, I mean, we're producing tons and tons and tons of food, but still in a city of 713,000, we're only dropping the bucket. But Detroit has something like 103,000 vacant lots. And so we think the city has the potential to produce about 10% of the produce that we consume right in the city of Detroit. And other cities probably have uh, maybe to a lesser degree but have similar capacity. And so we think that's part of the solution. Uh, it's not the entire solution. We need to, of course, uh, cause the major food producers and food distributors to behave in a more responsible, accountable way because still for the – foreseeable future, we're getting the majority of our food from this industrial food system. And so we need to address the structural inequities that exist within that system and with how food is brought to communities and really address the whole idea of the commodification of food. Because we, we, we come down to a point now where grocery stores look at, uh, when they look at where they should locate, they're looking almost primarily what their bottom line will be in terms of sales. And so we have to look at food access in terms of something beyond just the bottom line. And that's a, that's a real challenge because we live in a capitalist society where everything is driven by profit. But our position is that food is a basic human right and that people have the right to good, clean food regardless of their economic station in life. Uh, so, so we do think, again, the ec that uh, urban agriculture has great potential for filling part of that gap, but it's certainly not the only solution. We also need to develop relationships with, with rural farmers, uh, and so we're not under any illusion that urban agriculture is going to replace the need for rural farmers. We think we can supplement what rural farmers are doing and that we need to develop relationships that haven't previously been developed between majority people of color, urban communities, and majority white rural farmers because we have kind of this common interest. They have a, a market that they can sell to, and then we have these large areas that have lack of access to fresh produce, and many times the two have just never talked. And so we think that part of developing this new food system is creating these conversations among people who previously haven't been at the table together. That sounds also subversive, Malik. But I, I, <laughs> the, the, I mean that in a positive sense. Um, the, 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 but let me explore a couple of things you just said there. So there's a, there's a lot of conversation in America about urban agriculture. Um, and, I, and you've just described how you don't think that urban ag can really feed urban populations on their own, on its own. So what is the the purpose of, what's the reason, what's the need for urban agriculture to exist then? Is it is it to address a symbolic thing, issue, or is it something more substantial and fundamental? Well, I mean, we do think that urban ag can play a substantial role in feeding urban populations. We don't think it's going to be the only thing that will provide food. But again, you know, a, a benchmark in the next few years in Detroit is to get up to the 10% mark. We think we're providing about 1% of the food right now. 
And I mean, there are examples in Havana, Cuba, they're providing something like 80% of the produce that's consumed in, in the city. So there is potential for ramping that up beyond 10%. But even if we're providing 10% of the produce, it does significantly impact the lack of food access. And also, equally as importantly, it injects millions of dollars into the local economy and stimulates the economy and creates jobs and creates empowerment and creates ownership. So that's also important. But it's symbolically important as well, because I think what has happened in American society is that people have ceded responsibility for their own lives, either to the government or to academic institutions or to corporations. And so just the act of beginning to take back the food system and growing part of our food is really a political act and an act of asserting our full humanity. So symbolically, it's important in that regard as well. I'm really interested in in explaining in some depth what you just said about this bridge that you think has to be built this, uh, uh, between the, what are mostly rural white farmers uh, and people of color who live in communities, especially given the price structure of agriculture, especially given how much food costs in reality to produce and what it costs at the table and how the profit system is built into that. It's a very complex thing. It's not, it's not easy to parse this thing out and create this. Could you talk a bit more about your thoughts on that? <sighs> <laughs> I mean, this is a very complex yeah. s- situation, and, and it deals with federal policy. It deals with artificial pricing of things. It deals with exploitation of labor. And so, you know, clearly I don't have all the answers no, to no, those. Right. And, you know, lots of people no, have true. their heads wrapped around it. Right. We're trying to figure this thing out. Right. But um, clearly there's a relationship between a farmer's ability to earn uh, a living and live, in, uh, live a comfortable life and having – uh, the markets to sell their goods to besides selling to ADM and, you know, the kind of l- large aggregators. Of, and the rest. Y- yes. Right, right. And so if we're able to create systems where farmers are selling directly to markets in urban areas, we create a consistent market for those farmers and, a- and enable them to live uh, a livable life and enable them to begin to break away from this kind of industrial farming uh, paradigm that many of them are locked into. And so that's that's part of it. Um, but, you know, also, you know, as I'm sure you're aware and your listeners are probably aware, much of the food in America is artificially low in price. And so we have a real challenge because we have to figure out how to provide food to people in urban populations that uh, have uh, little disposable income and also provide a fair living for the farmers. And so that means that really, you know, prices of some foods need to need to go up. So that farmers and farm workers can be paid a livable wage and people have to adjust to, you know, to, to paying the, the real cost of food. So that's a real dilemma. Do you think that the, 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 at the core of this idea of building an urban agricultural movement, building urban agriculture in America, that, let's say for argument's sake you just said could feed perhaps 10 percent of a, a city's community, it was, is, that a, is, is that a world that – can be developed where communities of color can actually and other people can actually work and live, create a lifestyle, create a way of making a living that can also be kind of transformative for an entire community? I mean, do you see that as a possibility as part of a movement building in America? Um, I don't see urban agriculture as being a panacea. Some people paint this as, you know, this is the answer to our problem. I I don't see that. I I think this is one factor in a, in a, a, a very complex puzzle of various pieces that fit together to create a vibrant community. Uh, One of the things about an oppressive society is it tends to uh, suggest to people that they don't have the capacity to shape their own reality. And I mentioned this earlier, that we've ceded responsibility for our lives in many ways to the corporate, academic, and governmental structures within the society. And so part of our work is really kind of to take back this capacity to shape our own lives, that we can determine on an individual basis, a family basis, and within our communities what happens. And so, uh, you know, just that kind of light going off in people's heads we think is is profound. And then once they start to see, oh, well, I, I can grow, you know, a significant portion of the food I consume, then, you know, they say, well, maybe I can educate my child too. Maybe we can start schools or maybe we can produce clothing. You know, imagine that, you know. We could produce shirts or, you know, pairs of pants. You know, we're not, we don't have to be dependent upon on the kind of multinational corporations 
for our survival. So that a large part of our work is really just trying to get that light to go off. And once people begin thinking more critically, they come up with all kind of ways to meet their needs. And so, you know, we see ourselves as being a catalyst to encourage people to think more critically about our lives and about how we take control of our lives and how we take control of our communities. Wherever I go, I'm raising the issue of racism within the food system and within the food movement and trying to get people to think more critically about it. This discussion on race is a very uncomfortable discussion in American society. We often sweep it under the rug. And so uh, based on my experience in Detroit growing up as a black activist, this has been part of my analysis for the last 40 years. And so I'm very comfortable talking about it. And I'm able to now fuse that with this discussion on the food movement and the food system. And so I always bring that. But I also bring an analysis of this system of unbridled capitalism that we have and how that plays into, in fact, is probably the major defining force in this kind of broken food system that we have. And so I'm not under any illusion that we're going to create a new food system without fundamentally changing the economic system in American society. And then also as a reforming chauvinist, I always bring a message about uh, gender equity and how uh, we all need to be more aware not only of the role women play in society and ensuring that women have equity, but also of honoring the feminine energy Mm -hmm. uh, because none of us can be whole without honoring that, including men. And so, you know, in my 20s, I was trying to be very macho. and, um, And so that underdevelops men. So I'm interested in the total development of all members of society. Um, And, you know, you asked me about my transformation. So diet is just one part of my transformation. But also there's been this political and cultural transformation that I've been going through. And I'm still I'm still in process, you know, but since I was about 13 and again, growing up in Detroit in kind of this post rebellion period and having gone to a school that was a hotbed of black consciousness, I began thinking at a very early age about political systems, economic systems, about culture. Uh, and about the role that race plays in American society. And so thinking deeply about those things over a period of several decades has been uh, has been very transformative for me. And also practicing various disciplines to to rid myself of antiquated ways of thinking and trying to adopt ways of thinking that are more uh, acceptable for someone who wants to see freedom and justice for humanity. So this has been a, 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 a very long personal journey for me And it's been done both individually in terms of my own individual study and practice, but also done in conjunction with groups of people who are trying to make the same transformation. And that's one of the messages that I bring, that as we're trying to transform, it's not just done individually. You don't just go to a cave and meditate and come to some revelation, but you do it through working in concert with others who are trying to make the same change. Well, this has been an amazing discussion. Um, uh, Malik Yakini, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for everything you've given us today, and I look forward to talking again. Thank you very much. And now, a part of Soundbites that's quickly becoming your favorite, with a great new recipe just in time for Easter. One of my producers, Mark Gunnery, visited Lila El Haddad in her kitchen in Columbia, Maryland. She's the co-author of a book called The Gaza Kitchen, a great new cookbook that shares traditional Palestinian recipes. And here she is with an Easter recipe. In the book, we feature kaik, which are date-stuffed rings that are variations of which are popular throughout the uh, Middle East, but particularly in Gaza, which is famous for its uh, date palms in the central Gaza Strip. There are exceptionally sweet red dates growing there in an area called Deir el-Balah, otherwise known as the Monastery of Dates. Uh, This particular recipe is very popular for both uh, the Easter and the Muslim Eid holidays. Uh, You take equal parts of all-purpose flour and whole wheat flour, so we suggest two and a half cups of each, one and a half cups of semolina, two cups of olive oil, half a cup of orange blossom or rose water, which you can find in most Middle Eastern markets, a tablespoon of yeast, two tablespoons of ground aniseed, one teaspoon of mahlab, which is the uh, crushed uh, seed of a dried uh, sour cherry pit. And again, you can find that in Middle Eastern or Indian grocers. A tablespoon of black seed or nigella seed and a teaspoon of toasted sesame seeds. Uh, That is the basic uh, mixture which you would want to mix together uh, and then allow to rise for about an hour or two. Uh, And then you would uh, make little balls out of the dough 
uh, roll the balls into logs, make a small indentation, and stuff that little log with the date filling, which is two pounds of date paste. Again, you could find that in Middle Eastern grocers. Two teaspoons of ground cinnamon, a teaspoon of ground cardamom, half a teaspoon of ground nutmeg, a fourth of a teaspoon of ground cloves, and two tablespoons of softened butter, just to kind of bind all of that together. Mix that well, and then again, you would maybe form little logs out of that date filling to make make it a little easier. Stick that into the the rolled-out dough log and kind of roll the whole thing together and then close it, pinch it with your pinky. Uh, Bake that for about 20 minutes or so, a little bit longer if you want a crispier uh, date cookie, uh, on about uh, 400 degrees and serve it with tea infused with sage leaves, a very traditional Palestinian tea. Batches of these are ordinarily made uh, on Easter and distributed to friends and family. Thank you, Leila Haddad, for that recipe. And please check out her book, The Gaza Kitchen, for more delicious recipes. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our engineer at the Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Siana Greaves, Morgan Barber, Monifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews with Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. For your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Dolmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.